1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. This is the word of the Lord. We have been studying the life of Saul this winter and next week... uh, we will be looking at chapter 15, which is the story where Saul is commanded to uh, perpetrate holy war against the Amalekites and does not do it fully and is therefore uh, disciplined by the Lord. And there have been enough uh, times in in our study of the life of Saul where we've bumped into violent scenes like this uh, that I, I thought it might be worthwhile to step back for a week and address this whole question of holy war, uh, to try to address this question of how do we reconcile these Old Testament commands to, to, to wipe out men, women, and children to effectively what some would call uh, perform genocide on whole people groups? How do we balance that with the God we find in the New Testament who Uh, commands us to turn the other cheek, forgive our enemies, and then go preach the gospel to the nations. What do we do with that? Well, to kind of think about this as a way to start, I was thinking about a song that if you grew up in church, you might have sung in Sunday school, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho. Uh, And if you you didn't grow up in church, uh, I remember our children, we had a, a, there was this little guy called the Donut Man, and he would sing these Christian songs on cassette tapes. Young people, cassette tapes were these plastic things that you would <laughs> pop in. They were really a lot better than reel-to-reel. It was really a high-tech improvement. 
And our kids would put in the donut man and he'd sing the Joshua song and they had hand motions and they would march around and celebrate the, the wall falling down. And the lyrics go like this. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Up to the walls of Jericho he marched with spear in hand. Go blow those ram horns, Joshua cried, because the battle is in my hand. I have very fond memories of my children dancing to that song. Now, songs like these are comforting to Christians because they call to mind a very familiar and hopeful biblical story. God elects Israel to bring blessing to the nations. He provides the land of Canaan as the home base for Israel's mission to the world. Uh, The children of Israel, after wandering in the desert for 40 years, conquer the land of Canaan at God's command. Joshua, showing great courage and faith, leads the way. Even though Israel does not fulfill her mission as a nation, Christ comes to the world through Abraham's family. And so we enjoy singing about that and hearing that narrative. It's part of our faith. It gives us hope. But along the way, Christians often realize that there, there is a more severe side to the Joshua story that's not really in the song. And it is this, Joshua and his army, after the walls fall, kill every man, woman, and child in the city of Jericho. And uh, Joshua does this because God commands him to. Joshua 6, 21, they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now the next city... uh, assigned to experience holy war was Ai. It was a strong military outpost northwest of Jericho. After a delay, Joshua uh, destroys Ai and everyone in it, and then heads south, uh, wipes out several other Canaanite cities. Joshua 10.40 says, uh, Joshua struck the whole land. He left none remaining. Then his armies head north. They commit holy war against the northern peoples. When he's finished, the book of Joshua says there was none left that breathed and that Joshua has done this just as the Lord has commanded. And the kind of warfare that uh, we're talking about here, uh, we're calling holy war. Uh, This command uh, to the armies of Israel as they conquer Canaan to kill men, women, and children as they establish their home there. And this raises very troubling questions for Christians who read the Old Testament. And we believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why does God tell Israel to destroy uh, nations in the Old Testament and then to preach the gospel to them in the New Testament? How do you reconcile a God that we find in Jesus who preaches peacemaking and turning the other cheek with the God we find in the Old Testament who commands holy war. So let's, uh, let's begin addressing what admittedly is, is a very difficult question um, by taking a moment and trying to understand what is this command to holy war? What is this command that's behind uh, 1 Samuel 15? And if you have your Bible, Austin just read for us Deuteronomy 7, but that's the first command that Moses gives of several the setting is, it's, uh, it's on the plains of Moab, outside of Canaan. Uh, Moses is preaching sermons, preparing the Jews to go into the promised land. 
And he essentially says to them, in verse 2, you must devote them to complete destruction. You'll make no covenant with them, and you'll show no mercy to them. And down in verse 6, he says, for you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his possession out of all the peoples who are on the earth. It wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from slavery. So God says to the people of Israel, I want you to go in, I want you to utterly destroy the seven nations that are living there. Uh, And Israel carries out this command in Joshua chapter 6 through 11 in uh, a number of battles. Now why were they to do that? Well, the uh, Old Testament text gives two reasons. The first reason is that they are supposed to destroy the nations so that they will not be uh, led astray by the false gods that the other nations worship. Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall devote them to total destruction, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they've done for their gods. So what the scripture says is that God chooses Israel to bring blessing to the world, uh, but in order for this to happen, Israel must remain spiritually and morally pure. So God commands the destruction of all other peoples to preserve their purity. The second reason the Old Testament gives for the command to holy war is uh, that the nations in Canaan must be judged for their wickedness. Deuteronomy 9.5, It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And so uh, the, the holy war is seen as a judgment on Canaanite wickedness. Now, as strange as it sounds to our ears, um, Israel's holy wars were ultimately about worship. Um, the Hebrew word for holy war, harem, means dedicating the captives of war to God in an act of worship. And if you study these stories about holy war, one of the things that you see is that it's a religious act on behalf of Israel. And there's plenty of chairs if you want to come in and get a seat. It won't bother us at all. Israel's leaders sought God's will in prayer when they begin the battle. They offer sacrifices so that they'll be ceremonially pure in the battlefield. Israel's armies take the Ark of the Tabernacle with them into battle, so God's spiritual presence will be with them. Israel worships and sings praise to Yahweh during the battle. After the battle, Israel sings praise and gives thanks to the Lord. Uh, Exodus 15, when Egypt is defeated, Israel sings, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So holy war in the Old Testament was about worship. It was a way of exalting the Lord God of Israel as the one true Lord. Now, how do we read texts like these today? Jesus won't allow us to reject the Old Testament. He says that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. His name in Hebrew, after all, is Joshua. Joshua. Jesus won't allow us to play off 
a mean Old Testament God from a, a nice New Testament one. He says that he and the Father are one. So what are we supposed to do with God's commands to slaughter men, women, and children? I personally have found this to be uh, one of the greatest problems I've, I've wrestled with as an interpreter of Scripture. Uh, I, I remember it coming to a head uh, in the summer of 2002 when I was studying in Israel and I was uh, sitting in a, in a hotel room and I decided I was going to read through the Old Testament that summer. And at one point I'd read so much of this uh, that I threw my Bible across the room and I stopped reading it the rest of the summer. Uh, I just could not, could not reconcile the God I was reading about with the God I met in Christ. A good Christian friend, uh, sometime around then, put it like this to me. He was struggling with Scripture and uh, its inspiration and authority in his life. And he said this. He said, Doug, okay, imagine the scene. A Hebrew warrior runs down uh, a Canaanite mother holding her baby. Uh, The mother trips, falls. Uh, The Hebrew warrior gets off his horse, takes his sword. She begs for mercy. He runs the mother through and then runs the baby through. You're telling me God commanded that. Then another time, I was leading a Bible study on Israel's conquest of Canaan, and a good Christian friend in the group grew quiet. And Later on, he explained why. I asked him, I said, what was going on there? And he told me a story. He said he was from Palestine. His family uh, had for hundreds of years owned property in Jaffa. And in 1948, Israeli armies uh, took over uh, his family's property. And uh, his family fled as refugees and have never been back since. And today someone else lives in the house. And he said, I am one of the ites. Is God against my people? And of course, we, we can't ignore the fact that the, the holy war commands of the Old Testament sound a lot like the commands issued by Osama bin Laden um, shortly before the attack on the World Trade Towers. Uh, 1997, bin Laden said, We declare a holy war on the United States government because it's unjust and tyrannical. Now, the, the critics of our faith, particularly the new atheists, have use these holy war texts uh, to argue that Christianity is essentially a, a, a religion of violence. Uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. He has a chapter called Religion Kills. He describes a lot of religious-based violence. He, he, he points to texts like these and essentially argues that uh, Christianity, instead of promoting love, uh, fuels violence in religion. And we have to be honest, um, it has. Uh, The medieval theologians justified the Crusades with the Holy War text. Some, not all, Puritans justified uh, the slaughter of Native American Indians on the basis of these texts. Uh, Christians in Rwanda uh, rationalized genocide on the basis of these texts. And uh, as recently as yesterday, there was a report about... uh, 
Christians driving Muslims out of a particular city with a, a Muslim falling off a truck and the Christian mob uh, beating him to death, um, believing that they were at war with the infidel. So given concerns like these, how do we read these texts? Well, I can't provide a fully satisfying answer. Um, I can offer four principles that we can keep in mind as we read these. The first principle is this. Jesus is the fullest revelation of what God is like. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Jesus tells Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus, in his final prayer to the Father, says, I have made your very being, Father, known to them. So as Philip Yancey put it in a book, he said, to see what God is like, simply look at Jesus. However we understand the Holy War texts, we need to read them through the lens of Jesus Christ. As Martin Luther put it, Christ is the central point of the circle around which everything else in the Bible revolves. The second principle that can help Christians read the Holy War text is that God's revelation is progressive. Uh, The ancient Near East in 1100 B.C. were in, uh, I guess, the late Bronze Age or the early Iron Age, was a world of unspeakable violence uh, perpetrated by a massive, well-armed professional armies. And we have countless inscriptions that describe horrible brutality and savagery in warfare. And I I have some of them written down here, but I decided I'm not going to read that in church. Uh, The point that I'm making is that nobody in the ancient world saw this as particularly shocking. And the biblical accounts of violence are are kind of PG compared to what was normal warfare rhetoric in the ancient world. Now, ancient people believed that brutality glorified the God of the conquering army. So God accommodates himself to the violent world Israel found herself in. He works in and through the violent fallen structures of the warring culture of the ancient Near East. But over time, God gives a fuller revelation of his perfect will. When we get to the New Testament, God's people are still involved in warfare, but it's spiritual and not physical. The New Testament writers never think of military conquest as a way to further the cause of God. They think about the peaceful spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. Here's an example. One of the most wicked cities in the first century ancient world was uh, Ephesus. And yet when Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, he doesn't say, uh, take up the sword, O army of Israel, and, and go kill everybody in Ephesians, in Ephesus. Instead, he says in chapter 6, put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
So spiritual warfare replaces physical warfare in the New Testament. The church is never commanded in the New Testament to conduct physical war against her neighbors. She's told that the weapons of her warfare are not of the flesh. The Christian soldier is to put on the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. In other words, now the war has moved to a spiritual plane. The third principle that can help us read the Old Testament text is this. Judgment is not just an Old Testament idea. The Bible portrays God as both loving and just. He is both of mercy and of wrath. And he doesn't just judge the Canaanites. He judges Israel, ultimately exiling them. Jesus frequently warns us to be ready for the great judgment the time when the sheep will be separated from the goats for all eternity, Matthew 25. The book of Revelation envisions Jesus coming as a divine warrior king and cosmic judge. John's vision, Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there with me a white horse, whose riders called faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. Out of his mouth comes a sharp word with which to strike down the nations. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So a faithful reading of the New Testament will not allow us to play a nice Jesus off against an angry Yahweh. There is mercy and wrath in both Testaments. And however you read the Holy War texts, they are a foreshadowing of the judgment to come. Now, the fourth principle in reading these texts is this God welcomes our hard questions. The goal of the Christian life is not to have all the answers, the goal of the Christian life is to know God. One of the ways you come to know God is by wrestling with Him following the example of David and Job and Jeremiah and others in the Bible, when you read something as you're going through the Scripture and it bothers you, it troubles you, it doesn't make sense, you don't know what to do with it, you don't know how it fits, you don't know how to reconcile it with another text, you go to God with it and He can handle it. It's okay to not understand. It's okay to say, I just don't get that. And in the wrestling can be a deeper knowledge of God. So how do we reconcile the Old Testament command to wipe out the enemy with the New Testament command to preach the gospel to him? The simplest answer is Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law. He says in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills the law. He completes the law. He models the law. He embodies the law. He perfects the law. He reveals the goal of the law. All the promises of the law are fulfilled in Him. And Jesus models a new law, a new way of relating to the nations. Now, you remember, every Holy Week we go over this, Everyone in Israel thought Jesus was going to practice holy war when he came into 
Jerusalem. He was going to raise an army and take out the soldiers, killing men, women, and children if he had to. But of course, that is not what our Lord does. He goes to the cross and forgives his enemies, rises from the dead, and then before he ascends into heaven, gives the church, the new Israel, a new law governing our relationship to the nations. And the law is this, Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we call that the Great Commission. And here's the point. The Great Commission is the church's holy war. We go forth with weapons of word and spirit into the world to find new worshipers for the king. Humbled by the awareness of God's love and wrath, we take the gospel to the nations. The church, as the new Israel, has been given the spiritual mission of making disciples of all the nations. While there's much in the Bible that's hard to understand, this much is clear. The church's holy war is the Great Commission. Now, to end, I was reflecting this week and praying and talking with a few of you. Our church is focused on the city. And if it's true that the Great Commission has replaced Holy War as the mandate of the church, what does the Great Commission look like for, for us in a city? And one of the things that several of you have reminded me is that Knoxville is becoming a refugee camp. There are hundreds of refugees coming into our city from all over the world. The nations are coming into our city. Uh, Global Seeds, of course, is leading the way in our congregation with this, working with Iraqi refugees, but Burundian refugees are, are coming here. Uh, Folks from Latin America are coming here. More recently, Syrian refugees are beginning to come here. Uh, One of you who walks somewhat in the prophetic circles that pray for the city a lot, when I was talking about this with you, you said, you know, it has been prophesied that Knoxville will be a, a community that receives refugees. And so for us, as a church focused on the city, One of the ways that we can fulfill the Great Commission is to become more aware of the nations that are already here, to to realize that there may be a tribal chief of a Burundian tribe living in an apartment in Lonsdale. There probably is. Let's pray.